Hello and welcome to the latest and greatest episode of the Quadcast. I'm John McAlevey. For those of you who are new to the experience, the genesis of the podcast dates back to October 1992, when on my very first day of therapy, the following lyrics blared from the speakers high above Jim A. at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation in West Orange, New Jersey, quote, I don't care about no wheelchair. I've got so much left to do with my life, end quote. Those 16 words spoke to me because I was 24 years old was seated in a wheelchair, and still had so much left to do with my life. The lyrics come from the obscure song Black Gold from Soul Asylum, and they became my mantra in the gym, during downtime, and quite frankly for these past three decades. It is apropos that the song begins and ends each and every episode of the podcast, which although mainly for and about folks like me who have had their lives affected by a spinal cord injury, is really for anyone who just wants to be inspired. Now, before we get started with today's show, I hope you had the opportunity to listen to the last installment featuring Mark Fugelvand. It was, after all, a milestone for us, our 50th episode. Quite frankly, I never thought we would get past one, so I hope today's is 50 wonderful, haha. And there's a story behind how this one came to fruition, story being the operative term. Over the years, I have had the pleasure of speaking with, learning from, and highlighting people who have, for one reason or another, had a terrible thing happen to them, but they have not let it define who they are or how they continue to live their lives. There have been athletes, entrepreneurs, inventors, politicians, friends. Heck, I was even lucky enough to have a Tony Award-winning actress join me. However, finding a member of our armed forces injured in defense of the country has proven to be elusive, until today, that is. Veteran Dan Rose is my guest, and for that, I must thank two people. Martha McCallum, host of The Story with Martha McCallum on the Fox News Channel, and Christopher Meek, co-founder and chairman of Soldier Strong, a charitable organization which provides support for U.S. service members and veterans. As an avid story watcher, I recalled a segment some time ago in which Mr. Meek appeared as a guest to talk about the amazing work his organization does on behalf of those who have unfortunately been injured. Enter Dan Rose, who was prominently featured in the accompanying video package, Walking, in a device called an exoskeleton suit. Dan, as you will find out, has been paralyzed from the waist down since 2010, following an explosion in southern Afghanistan. And yet, in spite of that, there he is, back on his feet again with the help of this tremendous technology. Thankfully, a good friend of mine reached out for Ms. McCallum, who in turn did so for Mr. Meek, and here we are. Following this PSA from Canine Companions, an organization I know and love having received my wonderful service dog Yokin from, the story with Dan Rose comes your way. And that, my friends, is next. This is my new best friend, Esther. She might look like any normal, playful puppy, but Esther's being raised to become a canine companions for independence assistance dog for a person with a disability. To get there, she needs lots of loving care and attention, plenty of exercise, and good eating habits so that she can live a long and healthy life for her future family. And she needs to spend tons of time socializing, learning basic commands like sit and stay, and taken to fun places with lots of distractions so that she can learn to cope in every situation. All of this will prepare Esther for more professional training to become a real assistance dog and a life helping a person with a disability to live more independently. Are you ready to open your heart and home for 18 months to a puppy like Esther? To find out more about becoming a canine companion for Independence Puppy Raiser or about other volunteer opportunities, visit cci.org or call 1-800-572-BARK. Raise a puppy, change a life. You can make a world of difference in the life of a person with a disability. And we are back. I'd like to thank you for choosing to spend some time with us here on the podcast that aims to be your weekly 30 to 45 minute session of OT and PT for the soul. It is now my distinct pleasure to welcome to the show the aforementioned Dan Rose. I appreciate you coming on, Dan, and thank you so much for your service. 
um, thank you so much for having me and uh, let me share my story. Yes. And we've been going back and forth for a while now, and I'm so glad that it was finally able to uh, to come together today. And we're going to have a, a great conversation. I know people will be inspired by your story. So why don't we begin at the beginning? Tell us, where did you grow up and what were some things that you enjoyed doing as a young person? Uh, yeah, no, I grew up in a small town in West Central Wisconsin called Toma. Um, basically, the interstate's separate their i-90 and i-94 and so it's kind of all it's really known for that and having gas stations for you to stop at um you kind of had like a typical childhood you know grew up playing hockey uh played a little football in my middle school years but i was always kind of the run to the litter i never really hit my growth spurt until between freshman sophomore year so i kind of got sick and tired of being the tackling dummy so i kind of <laughs> moved away from football and just you know stuck with hockey other than that you know i just kind of grew up like Raising hell on my bike with my uh, with my friends, you know, just terrorizing the town, riding all over the place. Um, yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun, kind of a normal childhood in that aspect. Yeah. You know, it's funny. My previous guest uh, or two shows ago, Kelsey Peterson, I don't know if you know Kelsey. She's also from uh, Wisconsin and she just, they did an autobiographical film on her, a documentary called Move Me, which is amazing. I urge you, if you haven't had a chance to see it to uh, to do so she was injured diving off of a boat in Lake Superior one night. Oh no. Yeah, and she's gone on to do amazing things. She's she's a terrific gal and so um if you haven't had a chance to see Move Me the documentary, I urge all my listeners to do so. Um I will definitely look into that. Yeah, yeah, she's she's a pip and I tell you she's got uh, a salty tongue too and the <laughs> throughout our conversation she's letting everything fly which was cool and organic and all of that stuff so you're growing up and you're doing outdoorsy stuff and and now i read in a bio that you sent over to me as you get into high school um explain a decision that you made one day to try and get out of a half a day's worth of school and uh it was a decision that sort of changed the course of your life tell us about that yeah um so they kind of, they basically just offered um you know, one morning that you could get out of classes and go take the ASVAB test. And after you took that, you'd get basically the rest of the afternoon off from school. And I, you know, would be, would rather be anywhere else other than in a classroom. So mm-hmm. I kind of, I was like, ah, oh, what the hell? I'll just, you know, rush through a test real quick, get a half day off of school and go and kill myself. Um, I ended up doing really well on that test, you know, and so basically put me on, you know, I'm pretty sure it put me on the list of, names to call for all the recruiters because I started getting pounded by them shortly after, um, you know, and just had them come to the house, give me the whole spiel, you know, I got to make so much money, travel the world, you know, do all these great sort of things. And, you know, it was always my intention to kind of go to college, you know, but I didn't really have much in line for, you know, how was I going to pay for it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it kind of, you know, the whole $4,500 a year for, you know, your, your tuition, um, that, and then the, the pay that you got or whatever, you know, it was pretty enticing. So I kind of figured that that was going to be, you know, one of my only options to be able to, you know, go to college and simultaneously pay for it and not have to come out, you know, with a whole boatload of debt. So it just made sort of, I guess, financial sense in that aspect. Yeah. It was a win-win situation. It seems like. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So tell us where did, um, the decision that went into that, obviously, you made it there. What did? Uh, where did you initially go, and what were some of the responsibilities when you first took over? Uh, when you first joined the reserves? Yeah, um, basically, it was you know I got shipped out to uh, Fort Jackson, which is in like South Carolina, just for the initial basic training. Um, I think it was a total of, like ten weeks all together. Um, and there, there's really not a whole lot of responsibilities other than you know just to shut your mouth and do what you're told and sort of yeah the first half is kind of basically where they just kind of break you down and beat the whole sort of independent mindset of you know like your former civilian life out of you yeah um you know and then the second half they kind of like build you back up you know and to sort of give you more of the you know like you're part of a team now sort of that mindset of you know sort of um, the unit before self kind of mentality um which is awesome. I had, I had an amazing time there. Um, you know, you, you have to do like a lot of like land nav courses, uh, obstacle courses, rifle ranges, all sorts of weapons training. And it, it was great. It was like a 
was a lot of dangerous and explosive things. So it was, uh, <laughs> it was right up my alley. Yeah. Uh, oh, wow. And yeah. you're, you're fresh out of high school, so you're a young man. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was 18 in a couple months or whatever, you know, and most of the people there were also, you know, similar similar age group. You know, we had a couple who were, you know, a little bit older in their 20s or so. Sure. Um, you know, and, and people from all walks of life. So it was, it was actually really interesting just – you know, being from, you know, small town, Wisconsin, just to be exposed to, you know, people that lived in all different parts of the country from, you know, more urban settings, you know, to like the to South or whatever, just to have all these differences. Yep. Um, and exposure to all, all sorts of different cultures too. You know, I mean, uh, where I grew up, it was mostly, you know, white Protestant, you know, kind of, that was basically, yeah. it. there really wasn't much, the diversity was, are you, you know, like, Catholic or Lutheran, you know, it's basically the, <laughs> yeah. the town divide, you know, and so like yeah. it was interesting to, you know, to be exposed to all these different, you know, like cultures and backgrounds, you know, and just, you know, even religious backgrounds too. I mean, it was interesting to, you know, kind of meet and talk to people from every walk of life. Absolutely. So now once you're finished with training, you're off to the University of Wisconsin, Eau Claire to major in biochemistry and molecular biology. Wow. What were you planning on doing with that expertise? Yeah. Um, well, my plan was sort of to, you know, go to school, become a pharmacist, um, you know, in order to really do that. I mean, it, it, all the schools would tell you that you just need two years, basically two years worth of classes, all these credits, you know, and then you can take like the, the I think it was like the farm cast test or whatever that to get into the schools or whatever, but basically you needed to realistically, you needed to have, you know, a bachelor's degree to really have a chance sure. to get into any of those schools. So I kind of, you know, through taking all the general courses, you know, I loved the sciences, love biology and stuff or whatever, but then like that biochemistry and molecular biology degree, like really intrigued me. So I kind of uh, decided to go that route for it. And when I was uh, in my senior year, after I'd taken the uh, the pharmacy college test or whatever, you know, starting to apply to schools, you know, it was like working with one of my friends, you know, and she, you know, I was like, oh, what should I write on these applications or whatever? And she was like, well, why do you want to become a pharmacist? You know, and it was just, that really like stumped me and I had no mm. good answer for that. And I was like, God, you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I really don't want to be a pharmacist. I got you know? nothing. So kinda, yeah. Yeah. And so like my plan then after graduation was just sort of, you know, like I was trying to get a job desperately in like a, a lab setting, um, doing whatever. And then, you know, maybe in a couple of years, go back and maybe start the grad school route. Um, yeah, I just happened to sort of graduate at the most inopportune time. It was like December, 2008. So it was like the whole great recession was just going wild at that point. So yeah. any job that I had applied to, it was either, you know, like you don't have enough experience or you've got too much experience or, you know, it's, all these funny ways of just saying, no, you're not getting hired. Right. Um, you know, so I ended up just ended up taking a job in my hometown, working on a logging crew, being a hand cutter, you know, like running around the woods with a chainsaw and then uh, just doing a little bit of like arborist, arborist work on the side, you know, just to, you know, pay my bills and make mm -hmm. things work. Yep. Beautiful country, at least where you were. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, no, definitely. It was awesome. It was, you know, being out in the woods every day, you get to see all the, all sorts of wildlife and, it was a fun job and it was a great experience, but it just definitely wasn't going to be a career for me. Yeah. And so that's when you made the decision to change your MOS in the army and volunteer for deployment to Afghanistan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I heard of a reserve unit and they were out of uh, Wausau, Wisconsin, which is a little bit kind of a little bit more North central uh, in the state, but they were uh, going to be deploying like in the next year or so. And uh, they were a combat engineer unit and, uh, you know, my grandfather, he was a combat engineer in World War II and actually served World War II, uh, Korean War and the, and the war in Vietnam. So he was a three-war vet. And so I was like, oh, that'd be an awesome sort of, you know, nod to him, you know, kind of experience. Not Absolutely. exactly the job he was doing, but sort of kind of, you know, the same sort of path. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was one of the reasons that I decided to go, you know, change over to be a combat engineer. Definitely. Yeah. little homage to your grandfather. So how yeah. old were you, Dan? And what was your mission when you arrived in Afghanistan in October 2010? Yes, yeah, so I was uh, 25 at the time. Um, our mission when we were over there was to do route clearance. So that's basically 
uh, we had these massive trucks that were called like M ramps or like mine mine resistant ambush protected. So they had like a a V hull like a boat. Uh, basically, what that would do is if an explosion went off underneath you, that V shaped hull would disperse the energy upward and outward instead of just coming straight through the floor of the vehicle and then basically through that it would go through the occupants and mm-hmm. uh which is why the army and all the branches actually really went away from like the humvees uh just because if they were if one of those vehicles was hit by you know 40 pounds worth of an ied or a mine or something it would basically you didn't stand a good chance of getting out of that alive yeah um yeah and so these trucks were just super robust um the ones we were designing were very robust and they were designed to take a beating because we were the ones out there kind of looking for the bombs which wasn't the smartest job but uh <laughs> we, we were we were very good at it um we actually never had a vehicle that went down a route after us get hit um which was a huge point of pride uh, we also had never lost a vehicle to an ied strike so we were we were very good at it yeah now here's a stupid question how do you know where they are? I mean, how, how do you sort of locate where they are? Is there is there certain telltale signs that sort of, you know, scream there's an IED here? Or is it sort of, you know, trying to find a needle in a haystack? Um, I mean, it's, it's really finding a needle in a haystack. Um, a lot of it was just the familiarity. I mean, we'd driven the same routes, you know, day in, day out for months at a time so at first like when you're going down routes that are new it's just terrifying you're on edge you're 100 focused the entire time just look at every little thing and there is no wrong answer and if anyone in the vehicle you know thinks that something's up or whatever it's like we'll you know we'll call it the uh, we had you know the buffalo was this bigger truck um it had like a long arm that could extend out it was hydraulically operated that you know could basically dig into the ground and and see if anything was there, you know, and it would be anything, pile of rocks or, you know, just whatever that doesn't look right. Um, so usually when you first start going down routes, you're going to be way more paranoid, I guess is the sure. best word for it. Sure. You inspect everything. And then when you get that familiarity with it, you know, you can kind of remember day to day to day, kind of what's the normal. And if something looks out of place, you're going to inspect that further. One of the biggest ones is like, we always through you know like candy and sort of crayons and stuff like that to the local kids and our trucks were big noisy and so they could tell that we were coming from you know a mile down the road and they would come running out to us and so if we got to an area where normally these kids come running out and we didn't see them it's like all right something's up right like that was one of the biggest indicators for us it's just the how the locals were acting and kind of if there was anything different from the you know quote-unquote norm Um, sure and so if it was something like that, then we, you know, get into that kind of hyper-focused, more paranoid mindset and, you know, check more things out. So, yeah. Now, how many other than yourself, how many other servicemen were in the truck with you when you would do these uh, sweeps? Yeah. So uh, we were, I was always in like the lead truck. Um, and so, it, you know, I would fluctuate between any of the three positions in the truck. Uh, we had the driver, um, and then the person who was sitting in the front passenger seat was the vehicle commander. And then we'd have a gunner up in the turret uh, just pulling, you know, 360-degree security for us. Right, right. And were you all, were you wearing all sorts of protective uh, gear at the time? Yeah, I mean, we all had, you know, the helmet, the, the vest, all that stuff. Um, um, the gunners actually wore, um, it was like a big old harness. It was gunner's, gunner's restraint harness, and there was like a seatbelt that would come up through the floor of the truck. Okay. And basically what that would do is uh, prevent the gunner, like if something blew up underneath you, like the, without that harness on, you'd be like a champagne cork just flying through the air, you know, that yeah. would shoot you up and out. So that would actually just keep you in the truck, but then you'd be bouncing around in the back of it like a BB in a beer can. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which was which is better than flying through the air and then come crashing down. So, sure, sure. Um, and then, you know, like up in the front, it was, you know, like we had like all the seatbelts and stuff, but what that would do is restrict you from actually like getting up and like being able to look out the windows. And so we normally wouldn't wear them, you know, and so mm-hmm. we'd, be, we'd be able to like kind of like look up over the edge of the door and see down, you know, and, and scan out a lot easier where if you're like seatbelted down and in, you basically can't, you know, look around as easily. And so it was just kind of 
a trade-off there for, you know, the overall safety versus avoiding, you know, the danger. Sure. Sure. Dan, how about tell us about the circumstances of April 27, 2010, 2010, the day that changed your life forever? Yeah. So um, basically on that day, we had to go clear um, uh, a new route. Um, And it was, you know, like basically going down the first time. No other trucks had really gone down since it had been constructed. And it was originally what we called them rat lines or whatever. It was just a small, almost a footpath, you know, like where the locals could kind of travel up and down just on either foot traffic or on their motorcycles, you know, they could get up and down. Um, and it was kind of between two of the patrol bases in the area that I was at. So they had, the CBs had come in, bulldozed it, widened it, flattened it so our trucks could go down. Um, they had done that right before the rainy season hit. And so then like during the rainy season, it's just, it rains every day, you yeah. know, and, and our trucks are massive and these roads were just dirt. And so if, and we tried a few times to go down different routes that were just dirt. And our, I mean, our trucks would just get buried. We had a big mine rollers on there and it just, we would get stuck. And so no one could go down these routes for about, I think it was about a month and a half, almost two months mm. um, where we didn't have, you know, the ability to go patrol them regularly. So, uh, yeah, so we started out going down this route as once everything had all dried out. And we came up to a, a ditch that had, you know, like crossed the road. And, you know, so we're looking there for culverts, anything like that, to where, you know, they could easily put, you know, explosives under a culvert, you know, and then wait for us to drive over and then blow it up. And so we're, you know, looking at both sides of it, and it's nothing. It's just, just dirt. So it looks like they basically just built the road right through this ditch and said, screw it, you're not getting, you know, this ditch isn't going to transport water from one side to the other. And so, right, you, you know, and we had, you know, we took our time and didn't see anything there, but when they widened out the route, basically there was a culvert there that they had just buried in both ends. And we had no idea that it was there, but some of the local people or some of the Taliban in the area knew it was there. So they spent that entire month and a half that we weren't patrolling that route basically filling it with almost a thousand pounds of explosives. Oh God. So as soon as we had decided, you know, it's while there's no culvert here, there's really nothing to investigate further. As soon as we got our truck over it, it blew up, uh, ripped the truck into two pieces. Like the engine and the mine roller set went flying, you know, about 40 yards forward. The crew compartment that we were in, you know, flipped up backwards and landed on the driver's side basically pointing back in the direction that we were coming from uh, you know it just all three of us inside the vehicle were knocked unconscious for quite a while and it was you know i, I remember first like coming to and like you know when i opened up my eyes like all the windows are just you know spiderweb and shattered but i can kind of see the horizon through the windshield and it was you know 90 degrees off from what it should be you know it's like the you know, it should be going across the windshield and it's, and it's, you know, bisecting it, you know, and it was just, yeah. you know, my brain's trying to make sense of it all. And, you know, I finally realized it was like, holy shit, we just got blown up. Like, it was bad, mm. you know, and then I was also like a standing position on top of my driver, you know, so he was kind of moaning and stuff. And I was like, oh shit, Chris, you all right? And, you know, he's like, oh man, I can't, I'm having a hard time breathing. You know, like you're standing on me, you know, and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I tried to move off of him, you know, and he's like, he didn't really do anything and i was like what do you mean you know and he started you know hitting my legs or whatever you know and i was like oh crap you know like i'm paralyzed you know and, and it wasn't even you know like I, oh no this is life-changing news or whatever it was more just like oh sh- all right that's this is the small part of the problem like pull myself up just had him shove my legs to where you could get comfortable right you know and it was kind of worried about our gunner matt in the back because you know he got he was bouncing around in the back of the truck or whatever. And so he was out for quite a while, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and he kind of came to, he had, he ended up having a, uh, I think he broke his ankle, um, you know, and so out of it, my driver had some small um, spinal fractures and he's got back problems now. Um, so it's not like he got off, you know, Scott free uh, yeah. or gunner got a broken leg. And, you know, we all had concussions, so mild TBI. Sure. Um, 
And then, you know, like I was basically left paralyzed after the injury, but by rights, it probably should have killed all of us in the truck. So, I mean, we definitely got off pretty lucky there. That's unbelievable. What a story. I, I read that in your bio and I was like, oh my God, I went back and read it two and three different times. How about your hearing? I mean, did could, you know, you see these war movies and you watch stuff on Netflix and stuff and you hear the bomb will go off and then it's like dead silence. I mean, was it, was it sort of like one of those scenarios? Could you hear anything? Like were you guys trying to talk to each other and not able to understand each other? No, I mean, like I don't, I don't think any of us even remember the blast really. I mean, it was mostly just that, that knocked us out cold right away. So, I mean, it's not even, I don't have any memory of, you know, the dirt, the anything like that, like sort of flying. It was just kind of, you know, like you come to afterwards. I don't know if you've ever had a concussion, but you know, like you get that ring in your head. Yeah. And so that, and that part is kind of true. true you know, it's, you know, they say you get your bell rung and that's a pretty good yeah. description of it. Sure. You know, and, um, yeah, but I mean, other than that, you know, of course, your ears are you know, kind of shot for a while. So it's, you're just kind of yelling. And we had, you know, like our headsets in the truck were actually like noise canceling. So that probably, you know, saved quite a bit of the damage that we would have just sustained from the, just the sheer noise of the blast. But, sure, sure. You know, so you still got those on. They're not working anymore. So it's hard to hear probably because those are there just muffling your ears now. Um, Unbelievable. Yeah, but. I, yeah, no, it was pretty crazy. So now, where were you taken, and what were the doctors telling you initially? Yeah, so, I mean, initially, like, I don't, last thing I really remember was getting pulled out of the truck, and then my brain just kind of was, like, you know, shut off. Um, so, I, just from reading the paperwork afterwards, they had, had uh, they got a helicopter into med flight us out, um, and they took us back to um, our base or whatever, which is just kind of, like, just to keep the medics a little bit more room just to make sure that everything was good, kind of assess the situation more. Right. Um, and from there, they flew us to the air airfield nearby us at Kandahar, uh, where they actually had more of a, you know, a larger sort of hospital unit where they could actually, you know, do x-rays and CT scans, CT scans and do any sort of life-saving interventions if they needed to. Um, so I finally kind of regained, you know, I, memory starting there i don't know it was probably hours after the blast or whatever and you know the doctors initially just came in you know and said you know like you've been you know you've had a blast or you've been through an ied blast um they didn't really have much to go off of other than you know like they couldn't feel anything you know kind of like below my injury level you know and so they they didn't really know why so it was kind of you know, it could be permanent, it could be temporary, it could be from the swelling, it could yep. be, you know, they didn't, they just didn't really know. So, I mean, like, the, there wasn't really any solid information that they could give me other than they're just going to, you know, make sure I'm good to go, stabilize me, you know, send me back to Germany. And then from Germany, I would go back to the States where I didn't even, I would, they didn't know where I was going to go yet, but I ended up going to, um, from Germany to Walter Reed. Okay. And then I will. Walter Reed is where they actually did like the spinal fusion surgery on me after a couple of weeks. And then, yeah. So um, how long before, uh, how long was it from uh, uh, April 27 to your, till the point you're at Walter Reed and they're doing some um, spinal uh, stabilization? How, how, what is that time frame? Yeah. So, I mean, it was, you know, it, it's kind of hard to really remember it. I was so drugged up at the time. Yeah. A um, couple of weeks. You know, and like, yeah, it was definitely, I was in Germany, I think, for just a few days. Okay. Um, and then to Walter Reed, basically, for, I think I was in Walter Reed for like a week and a half before they did the surgery, just to kind of let all the swelling and stuff go down. Yeah, yeah. Um, prior to kind of cracking things open and then re-aggravating stuff, so. Yes. Uh, yeah, I think it was a total two, two and a half weeks between the blast and my okay. stabilization surgery. And so what is the level of your injury and what, what is the, the final, you know, what was the final determination? Yeah. So I'm uh, T4 uh, complete. So yeah, the surgeon at, who did the surgery was basically, you know, told me flat out. He's like, yeah, your spinal cord is shot. You yeah. know, like you, it, you did a number, which you know, it, it sucked hearing that, you know, and kind of, you know, he's like, yeah, you're not going to walk again. Your leg's never going to work. You know, so it was, it was tough to hear. And sure. It just kind of shattered my entire 
world, you know, basically. But I think also at the same time, it really sort of helped to force me to accept it. Yeah. You know, there wasn't that I, you know, I, I, of course, had that long, or not really long, but I mean, a period of time, you know, where it's like, oh no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna walk out of here, you know, like I'm gonna show these guys, you know. And right. After hearing that, it, it didn't take long for me to kind of, you know, have be forced to accept it. Sure. Um, you know, but I mean, I mean, I was kind of lucky that, you know, I actually broke my back twice before them, you know, and I was like. 14, 15 playing hockey, got hit in the boards head first and ended up kind of having just small fractures like in my spine or whatever. And then when I was 19, I was riding a four wheeler and just doing stupid stuff, riding a wheelie, you know, and I had the four wheeler kind of come over backwards. And so whenever oh, I jumped off it, you know, I, you know, I ended up busting my uh, first lumbar, you know, and having to go to like Mayo Clinic and they did like a whole bunch of surgery there. And, uh, you know, but both of those times I, you know, kind of, skirted away without disaster so the third time was definitely the charm for the uh, time was the charm oh geez <laughs> yeah. so uh after the surgery where did you rehab and and how long did you stay yeah so i did my rehab down in uh the va down in tampa florida uh and i was there i got flown down there right before memorial day and i got to go home right before labor day so i mean i think it was just it's about three, four, three and a half months, I think, in okay. total I was on there. Yeah. You know, it's amazing. I work at Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation up here in New Jersey, one of the top oh, nice. spinal cord places in the country. And, you know, it's amazing, Dan, the stays that people have now. I mean, I work as the peer counseling coordinator, so I go in and introduce myself and see if people are interested in talking. And, and if I can't, if they are, then I try to match them up with folks who might have a similar injury to theirs. And, you know, I'll go in on a Wednesday and like a week and a half, two weeks, maybe three weeks later, some of these people are gone. I mean, they're there. The stays are so short with, you know, the insurance companies pulling them out of there. And it's, it's really crazy. My, my accident will be, will be 31 years this coming August. And I was an inpatient for almost four and a half, five months. I mean, the stays were really long back then. So oh, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. These people nowadays, even folks that are on ventilators are there for maybe three weeks and maybe four weeks tops, and then they're gone. I don't know how they do it. Well, I, I don't know. I think that's probably not to their benefit. You no. know, like I, I can't imagine that you can get anything done in three weeks that, you know, basically just the whole... Right? When you, when you first get in a wheelchair, I mean, it was like, I was like a fish out of water. I couldn't push 100 feet down a hallway without just being exhausted. Sure. And, sure. you know, like learning all those skills, you know, to basically function yeah. you know, out in public, you know, like try to get through a doorway in a wheelchair the first time and you'd fish out of water. So you know? true. Like you, so true. Oh, man, that's, that's, that's crazy that they're it going is. out of the hospital that soon. Sure. So now you're discharged from rehab. What are, what is the plan moving forward now? You're, you're now newly injured. You're in a wheelchair. You've got that great um degree i mean what is the plan what are you starting to think like i'm going to do with my life now yeah i mean like basically my entire plan was just to get out of rehab you know just to get through the hospital and get home as quick as possible so there really wasn't much afterwards that i actually considered or really thought about like when, when i was there in the hospital so it was um you know still considered active duty in the army as well you know and that actually took another in almost two years until I was medically retired from the army. So I was technically in the army that entire time. So I couldn't really, you know, I still had to call in every morning and, you know, I kind of had to go down every couple months down to the, yeah. you know, I think it was like the down in Rock Island Arsenal down in Illinois or whatever to report down there every so often just to show up and let them know I'm still doing okay or whatever. Uh, so it really didn't have much of a plan once I got out of the hospital. And that's kind of where, you know, things went dark on me because, you know, being in the hospital, it was like, you know, I think there were 15 other guys there, you know, in wheelchairs, similar situation, you know, spinal cord injuries or whatever. Yep. Everything, all the doors open for you, all the, you know, the beds go up and down and everything is, you know, super accessible and being in Florida, it's super flat and, uh, you know, and actually Florida is quite, has a lot of accessibility, um, which was great, you know, and once I kind of, got home you know it was i knew all of the you know blocks in the town that had 
or that didn't have curb cuts, you know, and all yeah. the houses have steps going up into it. All the, you know, or not all of them, but quite a few of the different restaurants or bars or whatever would have, you know, stairs just going up into it. So I kind of knew right away, you know, like sort of where I could and couldn't go. Um, all the things we know, take the, for granted, right, Dan? Oh yeah, exactly. You know, and there also weren't a lot of other disabled people or people in wheelchairs in Tulma at the time that I, that I knew of, you know, so I definitely felt like I was just, you know, alone in the world, you know? And so like things got pretty dark for me. And, um, I mean, like luckily before I left rehab, I had a really awesome, like rec therapist, Tammy, and she, you know, basically taken me out like hand cycling, got me try all these different adaptive sports and stuff like that. And before I had left, she came into my room and was like, hey, in December, you're going skiing out in Colorado, you know? And I was like, sign this paperwork, oh, you know? And it's kind of like, all right, yeah, yeah, I'm just kind of appeasing her or whatever, you know? Like, I'm not really considering. <laughs> yeah, right, I'm going um, skiing. Yeah, you know? And so it was like between, you know, like getting home, what was that, early September, you know? So like September, October, November, we're just, yeah, I was almost ready just to throw in the towel, yeah. you know? And it was... Yeah, I almost didn't want to go out to on the trip out to Colorado, but my sister moved out there like a year and a half or about a year before I went to Afghanistan, you know, and so I'd already told her about it. And she was all excited to pick me up at the airport and uh, go up to Breckenridge with me. And, you know, had she not been out there, I probably never would have even gone. Yeah. Um, which is super fortunate because, like, I, I had already made up in my mind that it was something I can't do. You know, I'm in a wheelchair. This is stupid. Like, I'm just going to make a fool out of myself or, you know, like, you know, they're going to just put me in a toboggan at the top of the hill and push me down or whatever, you know, (laughs) um, you know, but I I ended up going and, uh, it was an amazing experience, you know, because like just, you know, I I still remember them kind of explaining how to do it, you know, like get me into like one of the sit skis, you know, and, you know, explaining how to get on the lift, how to get off the lift, you know, and it's just, you know, and I'm, I mean, I still had that mindset of like, this is a horrible idea. This is just, stupid and what really didn't help was that on the first time going up the mountain like getting off the chairlift you know i was like all right ready go and you basically just throw your arms down hit the seat and launch yourself out of it you know to go down the landing of the lift or whatever and as soon as my butt clears off the seat i just i just take a digger right on my side right there they had to shut down the lift you know and like basically a bunch of people come on over you know and get me up you know and get me out of the way you know yep. it was just I was all sort of flustered i'm like this is a disaster yep you know and i, and I kind of like looked up though and i was like looking down the mountain over like the town of breckenridge you know and it was just kind of one of those experiences where it was like oh my god like this is amazing you know like i don't belong here and yet here i am mm-hmm. you know and so i you know, gave it a try going down the hill, you know, and it was, of course, I crashed a lot, you know, but I was actually able to, you know, after a few days to ski sort of quasi-independently and still wiping out every, you know, so often or whatever. But, yeah, you know, it was kind of like one of those, you know, just the, the light, the light switch flips, you know, and it's just, you, you know, I had that all that positive sort of, you know, I, I can do this. Like, wow, oh, my God, I can still, you know, I can still do this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, what else can I do? You know, and it was kind of like a real turning moment in my life yeah i was um, gonna say do you think in some ways that this trip really sort of pushed you forward and maybe took you away from a really dark place that may have gone sideways and 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 sort of gave you that wind in your sails to move on with your life yeah definitely i mean uh, it it definitely saved my life you know or just drastically altered the trajectory of it you know to where you know i wasn't just going to be sitting there isolated alone at home or whatever um thinking terrible you know, thoughts got, exactly and when, when when i got home you know it was like all right well i need to get into you know different things or whatever and there's like different programs down kind of around madison there were there were quite a few different um, adaptive sports organizations down there so i decided to to move down there which was you know one of the greatest things i ever did um just because you know there's more to do down there just adaptive wise sure um also there was more unknown things out there that i had to go out and experience which was really you know it's tough being in a wheelchair because you don't know if everything's accessible or not or whatever so it, it gave me i guess more experience in dealing with that like when you get you have a plan to go to a place you all of a sudden you get there and there's three steps and there's no yep. accessible entrance and it's like all right you know, prior to that trip, I think that would have just crushed me. I would have been like, well, screw it. I'm just going back home where I know it's safe. And exactly. I know I can go play it. 
mean? So like, I kind of developed the skills. I'm like, well, that sucks, but you know, there's another place 200 feet from here or, you yep. know, like, or we'll go find somewhere else, you know, and we'll make things work. Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, that definitely, definitely helped me out a lot. You know, Dan, one thing I hear in your voice and I've heard it from many, many of my guests is that sometimes it's, well, not sometimes it's after you've had a spinal cord injury, it's really hard to put yourself out there again to do things because as you said, you don't want to look like a fool doing something like you were falling off the chairlift. And sometimes, you know, when I get out there, I can walk, but you know, I, I have little use of my upper body. So when I do walk, it's like people looking around, like, what the heck is this guy's deal? Like nobody knows what my story is. And so putting yourself out there is tough. It's just easier sometimes to stay home and to, to not draw attention to yourself. And in one of those um, ways is, you know, trying to find a significant other. And um, I read that you are happily married. Can you tell us how hard was it initially to put yourself out there to date again and tell us how fulfilling it is now that you're happily married? Yeah. I mean, it's definitely tough. I think in your mind, you make it a lot harder than it actually is. Um, of course, you know, it's, when you first get into a chair or whatever you think everyone's just, that's all they see. And that's really a hard thing to kind of get over, but I, I kind of started to think of it as like a, you know, it's a great filter, you know, that anyone who kind of cares about the chair isn't really going to come up and approach you or talk to you or whatever. So, I mean, that automatically just filters out the majority of people that aren't going to work for you. Yeah. And, you know, like, the, yep. you know, I mean, that's quite a few people and that's fine. You know, it's, I don't know. I look at it like I don't have to waste my time there. Sure. Um, you know, and there's other people who, you know, honestly don't care. You know, they're just going to treat you like an average normal person that you still actually are. And it's hard to kind of realize that right at first. Um, and then there's, you know, like there's also a small subset that are going to go out of their way to try to do everything for you, you know? And so I was trying to find a, you know, the balance of a person who's actually going to be compatible with you. And that, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, like just putting yourself out there and failing in it. And for me, I think it was, you know, what doomed a lot of my relationships after being in a chair was the same, same issues that I had prior to my injury that, you know, kind of, yeah, kind of train wrecked all the other relationships that I had before, you know, so until I kind of figured out how to deal with those and, you know, kind of make amends with those, I wasn't really ready to find the, lasting relationship that I ended up finding with my wife and actually we became we just started out as friends you know we both had moved to Madison at the same time uh kind of met online at like kind of like a uh more of like a meetup site for like new young professionals in a city or whatever and so it just started going out for you know dinner drinks together sure. not with any romantic interest at all uh, to begin with which is actually kind of I think nicer it took a lot of the pressure out of the relationship you know or it was just more casual yep absolutely um, you know and after you know getting to know each other in that regard you know we kind of both realized that there was something more there and kind of decided to take it to you know the next level um you know ended up working out really well you know and we're together today happily married uh we've actually got a little girl on the way so hey congratulations thank you thank you yeah we're excited i'm also terrified so we're <laughs> in the process of uh changing our office into a nursery and you know kind of getting a bunch of packages you know delivered every day that our garage is now looks like a shipping container with you know car seats and <laughs> babyville huh? oh yeah yeah definitely oh, so it's wow. uh that's great. It's exciting. Absolutely. You know, my previous guest uh, on the show that I recorded a week or so ago, uh, Mark Fugelvand is his name. He was injured uh, diving into the Pacific Ocean. He hit a sandbar and he and his wife now have two boys. Mark is in a, uh, I think he's a C4 or C5 quad. Um, okay. And he he said it was the hardest thing, you know, having the kids, they were able to have the boys and now it's the most fulfilling thing that he's, he's ever done. It's, it's, it's not easy. He said sometimes having to watch other people do for the boys, things that he can't do, but at the end of the right. day, it is, it is so fulfilling and he just loves being a dad and he loves being sort of a role model of being 
you know, a disabled father that is still able to do it and, and to show his boys how strong he is and, uh, you know, to show the world at large that, you know, we can still do these things, even though we're in wheelchairs. It's, it's something that he wears sort of as a, as a badge of honor. It's amazing. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that, you know, the pride kind of thing where it's like, you need to ask for help is one of the hardest things to get over yeah. in order to accept or, you know, but I guess I, I think that's one of the bigger accomplishments that I've done is kind of having to sort of swallow that pride, you know, and be able to ask for help. And it's still hard for me to ask for help. I'm not going to lie, but you and me both, it's the hardest thing. It's the, it's the know, loss of independence, right, Dan? That's the hardest part about all of this. Oh God. Yeah. Not only that, but I mean, I feel like after my injury, it was like just the, I thought I lost my, who I was, you know, I was the kind of more active athletic type person, you know, and being in a wheelchair, I thought it was just always going to be on a sideline. So I thought I could no longer yep. do that, you know, and it took me years and to finally actually start doing therapy, you know, to realize that like, I haven't changed at all. You know, it was just my perception of who I thought I was going to be was what had changed. It wasn't who I was, you know, exactly. To forever kind of notice that. And after I did, I was just like, man, I wasted so much time. Sure, it all clicked, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No doubt. No doubt. Well, interestingly enough, I I found out about you. Uh, I mentioned that I had been trying to find someone who was serving the country and was injured in, in the battlefield and for the longest time. And, and luckily, today's interview was made possible because of some good people that put us in touch. That's Martha McCallum from Fox News Channel and Christopher Meek, the founder of Soldier Strong. Tell me how you found out about Soldier Strong and uh, how did you become affiliated with the organization? Yeah, no, um, yeah, it's kind of a crazy story. And I'm so glad that it actually happened. Um, it was a few years after I'd been injured. I was living in Madison, um, and at the I was uh, would always go down to the Milwaukee VA just because they had a spinal cord unit down there uh, for any of my healthcare stuff. Um, one of their PTs had called me up and said that they were having uh, a company come in to demonstrate like one of the exoskeletons, and she would ask if I would you know like come in and try it out or whatever. And I was like, oh well, yeah, I'd love to, you know. And so that was kind of my first exposure to. Um, those devices and after you know demoing the device my or one of the doctors the chief down there dr lee called me up and said that there was an organization um, who was looking to donate one of those devices to a paralyzed veteran you know and he wanted to put my name in for it and at the time they were called soldier socks uh, when they originally started and uh you know, I, I was like, yeah, let's do it. You know, and I kind of thought it was like buying a Powerball ticket. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, this would be amazing, but, you know, it's never going to happen. Right. Know, so kind of, you know, typed up the, all the stuff that he needed for the application, all that, you know, and did all that and sent it off, you know, kind of just sort of forgot about it, you know, until a few months later. It was like kind of right before Thanksgiving. And uh, Dr. Lee called me up and he's like, oh my God, Dan, you got picked or whatever, you know. And he's like, but, you know, like the one stipulation, you got to go out to, to New York City to uh, do a little bit of an event to, you know, accept the, accept the device, or whatever, you know, and I was like, actually, I'll go to the freaking Mars. <laughs> Dude, you won. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, that is not a problem at all. Uh-huh. Uh, and so, yeah, like going out there the first time, you know, it's like my first time meeting up with uh, Chris and, you know, sort of, yeah, I was able to stand up and do a little bit of a walk in front of a crowd of people. And it was, it was just amazing, you know, and it's kind of one of those experiences I don't think I'll ever forget like that first time doing the demo at the Milwaukee VA where I, you know, stood up for the first time and I had done like standing frames sure. prior or whatever, but this was like kind of like the first time, you know, like really, you know, you go from the seated position up to the stand, you know, and it's just, you forget what that change of perspective is, you know, from a seated to a standing position. And yeah. I just felt like I was the tallest person in the room, you know, like I was standing on top of a mountain just looking all over the world differently again, you know, and it yeah. just felt amazing. Did you have um, any blood pressure issues when you were first doing it? No, the, the first time when I was in rehab that they actually put me up in a standing frame. Yeah. Like normally they'll, they'll kind of do like the tilt table. Oh yeah. And all that, sure. and all that stuff or whatever. And like, there was, you know, there was somebody already in like the tilt table, you know, and I, you know, I'm like, what's the worst that's going to happen? Passing you out. Know, and the, yeah. The PT I was working with, he's like, well, you probably, you know, black out and pass out. And I'm like, well, I'm pretty well strapped into this thing, so I'm not going to go anywhere, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yep. Like, you know, and it's like, all right, let's see. You let's know, do it. Stood me up, and all of a sudden I'm sitting there talking and just kind of, 
you know, just remember things kind of going a little gray and kind of <laughs> going down. And all of a sudden I was like sitting down again. I'm like, huh, what happened? They're like, yeah, you passed out. Yep. And that was the only, that was the only time I really had an issue with it. And, uh, you know, after we did it a few more times, you know, and the, yeah, the, you the adjust. Yeah. Your body adjusts. Yeah. So tell yeah, us so about that. Good. Tell us about that first time you were in the exoskeleton suit. I've used them before. It is the coolest thing in the world. It's like RoboCop on steroids, right? And yeah. um, it was. It takes a little time to get used to it. I know for me, who who have I have the use of my legs. So for me, it was a little different because it it really herky jerky in the beginning there. But tell me uh, your first reaction with it. Yeah, I thought it was pretty amazing. Um, and I think, you know, like having like downhill skied and done a couple of different like adaptive sports where it's like all sort of like balance, you know, really helped me out with like the, the device because it was kind of, I don't what, what exoskeleton did you use to walk with? I did, um, I did it in PT. They were just trying to, I, you know, every once in a while I'll go in, we call it for a tune up, like every six months okay. or so I'll go back. And yeah. so they said, Hey, we've got this really cool new thing here. Why don't we try it out with you? And I used it, I think five or six times and it helped me with my gait. You know, it really helped me get, uh, get my mojo back as they like right. to say. Well, yeah. So the one I used was from like exobionics where like when you would hit like your lateral shift point, it would make either like a beep or a chirp yes. and then you would have to lean forward a little bit and then it would. You know, I think it was a beep for the lateral and a chirp for the once you got over forward. And once you hit both of those points, then it would initiate the next step. Exactly. That you was know? the one so I had. Just, yeah, yeah. So, like, it was basically, like, you got to, you know, in the PT that I was working with at the time, you know, he's amazing at what he did because he had me up and walking, like, within 15 minutes of getting into the device. Yeah. And, you know, I was like, all right, so this is where, you know, to the side, you know, here it is. Once you get forward, boom, and then it would take the step, you know, and you'd be like, all right, we're going to do it on the other side. And so I was able to pick that up fairly, fairly quickly or whatever. And it was just, like you said, it was slow and kind of herky jerky or whatever. And, but th none of that mattered because I was up and taking steps again, which was amazing. Yeah. Uh, yeah when I told my grandma about it, she said, like, Oh, it was a miracle. I was like, not really. It took a lot of, <laughs> a lot of smart people to make this happen. But exactly. Yes. Yes. So do you have that now? Do you still have it? And, and do you use it on a daily basis? Yeah, yeah. So I actually have it. I, we haven't been using it as much. Once we started doing like IVF stuff, and uh, my wife was kind of like on, you know, like head lifting restrictions for any of the procedures that were coming up. Or oh, whatever. Yeah. So we really haven't used it that much at home, but I actually just reconnected with um, the EXO group or whatever uh, to do another event with Soldier Strong here at the end of the month. Um, so I'm actually going to go out uh, one of the, or two of the PTs for EXO actually live out in the Denver area. So I'm going to go meet up with them at one of the PT gyms and uh, hop back in the device, kind of, you know, get a re refresh on it, a retune up and yep. uh, yeah, get back to using it again. Hopefully, you know, I'll be able to work with them a little bit more in the future um, just to kind of stay, stay fresh and, you know, because the devices are amazing for like the range of motion. Yeah. And as well as like, I, I, when I first got the device, I was part of like a, home use study just to see what the effects were and it was actually they did like a bone density scan on me mm -hmm. before using it and then after using it for like six months and like not only did like the bone density loss stop or whatever mine actually like improved you know so it's just it's the weight amazing. bearing right it's the weight bearing exactly. through those bones exactly. yeah sure so do you still yeah. do some events for soldier soldier strong do you still um you know meet up with well, them and do events and things like that and promos yeah, it's like, I mean, the pandemic really, like, shut down most of that, um, and yeah. I haven't done one, you know, actually, the last one I did was in February of, like, 2019, I think it was end of February, early March, right before, I think it was early March, because it was right before everything kind of, you know, hit the fan and all the lockdowns and everything like that, Yeah. Um, and so I haven't really done an event with them since, I've done a couple online things with them, sure. you know, but never... Uh, not one of the in-person events. So like this will be the end of the month. I'm going back to the Indy 500. Um, they, one of the praise teams, the Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan team um, works with Soldier Strong. They, they would do like turns for troops, which is basically every lap of their cars were complete. They would donate money and United Rentals would then also donate money towards Soldier Strong for their yep. um, medical devices and scholarships and yeah. grants that they were doing or whatever. So it was an awesome partnership. So it'll be great to 
you know, get back down there and meet up with all the people from RLL, the Soldier Strong people and the United Rentals people. And, you know, it's like getting the band back together after yeah, a long hiatus. Sure. So, uh, I have to say, really looking forward to that. after watching that, uh, that segment on uh, the story, and uh, doing some reading up on it, Chris seems like an amazing guy in the organization. Just seems to be top notch and putting, you know, servicemen and women right at the forefront. Yeah, no, it's amazing. You know, he it started out soldier size, which is basically one of his friends. Um, I believe he was serving in Afghanistan with the Marines at the time. You know, was saying, you know, we just need you know baby wipes and and fresh socks. You know, and so like he started. You know, talking to all the people. I think it was up in uh, Connecticut. I can't remember which part of Connecticut, but uh, you know, he started talking to all of his, you know, coworkers, friends, neighbors. You know, it's started drive, started and all this stuff. So he basically had pallets of socks and baby wipes, oh, wipes in his garage. You yeah. know, so poor, poor wife is having to park out in the <laughs> driveway in the middle of the Connecticut winter. You know, and so, but yeah, basically, and started shipping over pallets of you know the the bare essentials to troops or whatever and and that kind of morphed as the wars kind of like drew down a bit or whatever into sort of what do you know these returning servicemen and women need you know so they have like scholarships for people who want to return to school uh they also do like medical devices for you know like the exoskeletons for paralyzed people or they do um sort of like some more high-tech uh uh, arm and leg prosthetics. You know, I know they do one of the arms that kind of is like the Luke Skywalker arm where you can actually like manipulate the fingers with like different servo motors or whatever the, I don't know what the hell goes yeah. into it, but basically, you know, like they can manipulate the fingers on a prosthetic device. It's amazing. Um, yeah, it's wild to see all that technology. And so it's kind of a cool thing that they're doing. I'm happy to kind of be part of that and to help you know, I kind of pivoted from donating like the exoskeletons to individuals and started donating them to um, different VA hospitals within spinal cord injury centers and different rehab sites, you know, to really kind of broaden their reach and to increase the impact that they could have on the community. So it's awesome to be able to, you know, share that experience of getting up for the first time and taking steps with, you know, people who are, you know, suffered a spinal cord injury that would never be able to stand again on their own without, you know, that crazy piece of technology. So it's great to be a part of that. Sure. Paying it forward, right? Doing, doing our yeah, exactly. little part. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be a part of all of that. Um, oh, definitely. And, uh, which would bring me now, Dan, to my final question. It's one that I always ask, um, folks that come on with me who've had spinal cord injuries themselves. And it dates back a few years ago. I was waiting for a doctor's appointment with a high school buddy of mine as wild, a guy that I was really tight with in high school. Unfortunately, he, got banged up and had a spinal cord injury himself. Um, so he was waiting and the two of us were sitting there and I just said to him, I said, Hey T, you know, if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what's the first thing you would do? And as I could see the smoke pouring out of his ears because he wasn't the brightest bulb on the Christmas tree, um, I heard from behind me, there was an elderly woman that said, I would go out and garden in my backyard. And then there was a gentleman in front of me that said, I would go into my garage and tinker with my car. And I'm thinking, hey, this is a pretty good question. So I uh, I put it forth to you, Dan Rose. If if I could snap my fingers right now and you would be completely able-bodied again, what's the first thing that you would do? You know, I think it would actually just be, you know, just to run up and down the stairs like I used to. <laughs> you know, like, like right now, like uh, our laundry is like downstairs in our basement. So we got like a stair chair and it's like, Every time I'm on it, you know, I just, I, I just constantly in my head and singing the song like "Slow Ride" from Foghat. <laughs> you know, because I mean, it's like a 45 second trip, you know, and it's, I, I just remember being able to just, you know, clear two steps at a time. I'd be upstairs in, you know, 10 seconds or whatever. So I think that would just be the, you know, probably do that for the entire day. Just go up and down the stairs, just up and down. Right. I've heard some great ones. I had one guy tell me he would run out his front, front. Uh, door out, up the street naked. I had someone tell me that they would check into a hotel and roll back and forth and get out of the bed on their own and take like a hundred showers that day. And uh, oh, yeah. my latest one, I was as I was telling you about before that, Kelsey Peterson, who um, who had the documentary, she told me I would have sex and a lot of it. So I laughed at yeah, that. There you go. 
Right? So that was yeah, really no, that's funny. Very candid. Yeah, no, it'd definitely be out on the list there. Yeah, there's certainly there's uh there's no one pat answer. Uh one another one I've heard a lot of is the uh, I would dance with my wife or hug my children, that kind of oh, a yeah. thing. And so uh it's um everybody has their own answer and uh they're all right, if you ask me. Oh yeah. I yeah. don't think there's a wrong one to it. Not at all. Well, Dan Rose, I can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on with me today. It's been a pleasure. I know it took a while for us to get here. Uh, and again, a, a major tip of the cap to Martha McCallum and Chris Meek, Christopher Meek from Soldier Strong. And um, I thank you not only for your time, Dan, but also for your service. I appreciate it. And I'm so glad that we were able to do this. Now, was that a story or what? I hope you will join me again in two weeks' time when my guest will be Jennifer French. Jennifer lives with tetraplegia, the result of a snowboarding accident. She is also an early user of an experimental implanted neural prosthesis for paralysis and is the president and founding member of the North American SCI Consortium. She, too, is the founder and executive director of Neurotech Network, a nonprofit organization that focuses on education and advocacy of neurotechnologies. I can't wait to hear all about what exciting ideas are out there and what's possible for the SCI community. Thanks, as always, to Chris Parapesco at Harbor Picture Company for mixing the quadcast. And until next time, I am John McAlevey, and I thank you for your time. I don't care.